0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me in segments two and three of today's program will be Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Many of you who are regular listeners will recognize Jeffrey as the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. Jeffrey, I caught up with this past week, and we talked about his most recent book, Liberty or Lockdowns. And I also got his forecast for the U.S. economy and real estate, given what appears to be more loose economic and monetary policy. Now, if you haven't yet visited the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website, I would encourage you, given the current environment, to educate yourself. And we have many resources on the website that are designed to do just that, to help you understand the current environment, to help you understand options, and to give you some ideas as to what you might want to do in your own personal financial situation. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. You can also sign up or view our past webinars, which we do a webinar titled Portfolio Watch Live every Monday at noon, And you can also get the podcast version of this radio program. You know, the webinars that we do every Monday, we have had terrific feedback on. And this past Monday, I talked about the very topic that I'm going to talk about in this segment today. When the credit cycle and the currency cycle converge. This is also the topic of the February issue of our Client Communication Uh, It will be distributed in about a week. If you would like to get your copy of the February report, When the Credit Cycle and the Currency Cycle Converge, and what it means for you, all you have to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com, and we'll be very glad to get a copy out to you. So to talk about this topic, to talk about when the credit cycle and the currency cycle converge, it's important to just understand what each of these cycles are. So I want to give you a little bit of background as to how I would define these cycles. Starting with the credit cycle. The credit cycle sees credit expand. Now, you hear those words all the time, but what does that really mean? Credit expansion just simply means that borrowing is taking place. Willing borrowers are borrowing money from willing lenders. And this happens until the system reaches its capacity for debt. And when the system reaches its capacity for debt, the credit cycle reverses and debt is purged from the system. Now let me give you an example. Your household has a certain level of income. Let's say that out of that income you're making a mortgage payment every month which you can very easily handle given the level of income that you have. Now let's assume your household starts to take on more debt. Now, in addition to the mortgage payment, you may have a car payment, maybe two car payments, and then added to the mortgage payment and the two, and the two car payments, you now have a student loan payment, and maybe a credit card payment. At a certain point, your household will peak in the credit cycle because your household doesn't have the capacity to accumulate any more debt. At that point, when your household credit cycle has peaked, you cannot accumulate more debt and you have one of two choices. You, one, by making principal and interest payments on all the debt you've accumulated, you dig your way out of the hole slowly, a little bit at a time. Or two, you default on the debt and say, I've accumulated too much, I simply can't pay you. Now, not only does the credit cycle peak on an individual or a household basis, it also peaks in the private sector collectively. Now, let me give you just one example. There are many that we could look at historically, but a really good example of the credit cycle peaking occurred about 15 years ago in the U.S. real estate market. And as I'll talk about in the third segment of today's program with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, we both believe that we're repeating the mistakes of 15 years ago. See, at that time, an individual could go out, and even if they had less than perfect credit, even if they had arguably even bad credit, they could buy a house with little or no money down, and interest rates were fairly low. Well, interest rates were low because after the tech stock bubble unwound around the turn of the century about 20 years ago, and I know many of you listening to this are old enough to remember that, the Federal Reserve reduced interest rates to create more money. Now, to understand this completely, and I would encourage you to get our February report by visiting requestyourreport.com, and we'll be glad to get you a copy when it becomes available You need to understand that in our monetary system, money is loaned into existence. So when more borrowing takes place, more money is created. If you go put $10,000 in your bank, under prior reserving rules, your banker would have reserved 10%. They could have loaned out the other 90%, and the borrower could then take that money and go deposit it in their bank. That banker could repeat. So the more money moved, the more money that was created. And if you want money to move, you just reduce interest rates because more people will borrow money if interest rates are lower. Those already in debt might be able to squeeze in another payment because lower interest means lower payments. And those who wouldn't ordinarily go into debt might be enticed to do so because the interest rates are low. So let's go back and look at this real estate example. Let's say a household is in the market for a $250,000 home. Now, in a more normal environment, a bank might require a 20% down payment and an interest rate of 6%. Now, you're probably thinking, I'm crazy. 6%? If you go back and study history, you'll find that that is probably lower than the average historical interest rate. So yes, those more normal market-driven interest rates did exist at one time. So in a normal environment with a 20% down payment requirement, buying a $250,000 home, a household would need to come up with a $50,000 down payment and at a 6% interest rate, they would have to make monthly payments of just a few pennies shy of $1,200. Let's say $1,200 per month. Now, in addition to that $1,200 a month, they'd have to pay their real estate taxes and they'd have to pay their homeowner's insurance. Now, compare that to the present environment where interest rates are artificially low. This same household perhaps could get a no-money-down mortgage and perhaps an interest rate of 3%, in which case they don't have to pony up the $50,000 down payment and their monthly mortgage payments are not $1,200. They're now $1,050. No down payment, lower monthly payments. Obviously, you have more buyers coming out of the proverbial woodwork. More demand is created. And when demand is created, when demand increases or goes up, prices follow suit. Prices rise as well. And that's why low interest rates cause bubbles. Now the point is this, credit can only expand so far. There is a limit. And that credit cycle peaking not only applies to your household and not only applies to the private sector in general, but it also applies to governments. Now think about this very carefully because I believe last year, the US government peaked in the credit cycle. See, historically speaking, Politicians, initially anyway, fund all the spending through through tax receipts. Then as time goes on and more generous promises are made, budget deficits appear, and these budget deficits are initially funded by borrowing money. Well, at a certain point, when a government becomes a big enough credit risk, willing lenders begin to disappear. I mean, here's the reality. Who wants to loan money, whether you're an individual, whether you're a business entity, whether you're another government, who wants to borrow money or loan money out that you may not get back? Well, the government also is subject to the credit cycle. And when they reach the point that no one wants to loan them money in sufficient quantity to fund their budget deficits, The government has two choices. They default or they print currency. They create money, which brings us to the currency cycle. The currency cycle starts out with our currency being hard assets like gold or silver. The second step in the currency cycle sees this evolve so that we're using a receipt that is directly redeemable for gold or silver, like a silver certificate most recently, The third stage in the currency cycle sees the currency become a fiat currency. The currency is simply currency because the government says it is, by decree. It's not backed by anything tangible. And then the last stage of the currency cycle sees the government or central bank printing so much money, creating so much currency that there is a fiat currency failure, and a reset occurs. Here's the key. When the government reaches the peak of the credit cycle and decides to fund the deficits through money creation because willing lenders are not appearing in sufficient quantity to fund the deficit, now the currency cycle is accelerated. I believe that's where we are currently. I'm going to talk more about this in the fourth segment of today's program, but I would encourage you to get the February special report It's titled, When Credit Cycles and Currency Cycles Converge and How You Might Be Affected. Just go to requestyourreport.com. We'll be glad to send you a copy of the report. All you need to do is let us know your name and the address to which you'd like us to send the report, and we will be glad to do so. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of being joined once again on the program this week by Mr. Jeffrey A. Tucker. Uh, many of you probably recognize Jeffrey as the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He's the author of many thousands of articles, and he has nine books published now in five languages. Most recently, uh, the latest book is Liberty or Lockdown. And uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program.
1: Well, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I always enjoy being on your show.
0: It's always a pleasure. So, Jeffrey, you were on the program uh, when your book, Liberty or Lockdown, was just released. Um, Talk a little bit to the listeners about what motivated you to do the book.
1: Well, I think the lockdowns happened to all of us in a way in which very few of us really anticipated. It was something that none of us had ever, uh, really would have ever imagined in our lifetime that, that governments would have shut our churches for Easter <clears throat> closed our schools for such a long period of time, try to open them and can't open them because of the teachers unions. that gov- governors would declare emergency powers to tell you how closely you can stand next to your fellow human beings <laughs> to block your ability to travel uh, to make it very inconvenient to do normal things like go to the dentist or get a cancer screening. Um, uh, uh, you know, would would uh, be able to dictate to restaurants and bars how many customers they're able to have at one time, if any at all. So this or divide the human population into essential and non-essential. None of this. This is all new protocols for us. I think people were so shocked by it, they didn't really know how to respond, you know, and they figured that mm, this this disease must be, you know, unprecedented, you know, maybe the bubonic plague or something like that, you know, that there was some invisible terror out there, and uh, so uh, too many people acquiesced. Now, I had been writing about this topic of Pandemic response for 15 years, and I knew these powers were there. I never imagined they would actually be deployed to the extent that they were. But I, I was sort of mentally, I maybe intellectually prepared to, to kind of be a commentator on on this. And so I began quite early on. Really, my first article I think was written um, late January, and I just kept ramping it up and and following the the unfolding of events. And really, I took it upon myself to, to, to try to explain people where all this stuff comes from, why it's not mitigating the disease, why this virus has got a lot in common with the textbook respiratory virus. And and I wrote it all up and, and published published everything in, in September and since that time. Now, I got, got to tell you, last January, I never imagined we'd be a year later <laughs> that we'd be still in lockdown, you know, in large parts of the country, not all. And I never imagined it goes long. It's it's for me, it's an illustration of just human folly. You know how you can, how, how how humanity can just slip into this pit of of error and just sort of stay stuck there for such a long period of time. I I hope we're all learning from this. And I my my purpose in writing the book is just to provide a little bit of a guideline to help people think through some of the problems that are afflicting us and and the social, cultural, and economic consequences.
0: You know, Jeffrey, I'd like your comment. I've always had a personal philosophy that whenever we give a group of politicians the power to draw the lines, even if you agree with where the lines are being drawn to start with, there will come a day that just about everyone will become very uncomfortable or vehemently disagree with where those lines are drawn. Um, Is this educating people on that or is it just uh, wishful thinking on my part?
1: I like to think that we're being educated, uh, but uh, but the thing the thing is that the, the madness happens and in, 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 uh, all at once in, in a kind of a big collective. The rationality and clarity are coming back just one person at a time. Um, but we are coming back. We're crawling our way out of it. And right now, it's, it's actually fascinating, Dennis, uh, we're talking about this today because we're, we're We're seeing um, governors and mayors trying to open up a little at a time in a way that that allows them to save face. so they have to generate sort of the science behind the opening but um, <laughs> but the uh, science isn't cooperating <laughs> but they're opening they're opening anyway a little bit at a time, but they have to pretend to, as if they uh, they know what they're doing. It's, it's actually
0: quite funny. So how do you see that this whole topic of, of lockdowns and, 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 and different governors with different perspectives and how do you see this playing out? Is this going to be a, a, a new normal, a topic of conversation later this year? How do you see this playing out?
1: Um I think that there's going to be a a, a growing rush, rush to open. Uh, there has to be. So so here's here's the problem. Um, we have several several case studies right here in the United States. I live in New England, by the way, and uh, the, the, the the New England perspective is that nobody else exists other than themselves. They know how to do everything right, and nobody <laughs> else matters. Uh, I, I don't know if you know that about New England, but it's a, it's a funny – you know, it's funny because New England imagines that they're, that everybody here is smarter than everybody else on the planet Earth. Forget the United States. Um, but, uh, but actually, in fact, they're very provincial people. So if you say, yeah, but Florida's been open a long time. They're like, uh, Florida? Huh? Florida? Huh. I'm really glad about that. (laughs) But at some point, (laughs) you know, it becomes impossible to deny that we have uh, three states that have been open for a very long time. One state that never closed, namely South Dakota. And uh, now they have very, very low unemployment, a huge uh,
0: immigration problem.
1: (laughs) Everybody's moving there. (laughs) And... uh,
0: Huge. Yeah, I, I have to yeah. confess I looked I looked at some property on Zillow in Rapid City. I mean we've all done it.
1: I <laughs> did that too. <laughs> it looks like a charming town, I must say. It looks like a wonderful place, yeah, right. Um and and then Florida's been open, I guess, since something yeah. like July, you know, and uh people living a normal life. And George's been open since more or less open since April. Um you know, and and life's uh, more or less gone back to normal in all those places. I, I think probably South Dakota and Florida the most normal normal. I spent some time in Texas this uh, two weekends ago, and it's it's pretty interesting actually the way in which um, um, uh, people are kind of performing a certain level of compliance, but people don't really quite believe in it anymore. Um, uh, it, it was pretty interesting, Dennis, because I went to. So I was giving a talk, you know, in a, in a big auditorium, and it started with a cocktail party. So we went upstairs to the cocktail party. It was air kisses, handshakes, pats on the back, sharing food, clinking drinks. You know, like life's completely normal. This is in Dallas. They said, "Well, oh, okay, now it's time for you to speak." I said, "Okay." So we went to the auditorium. Well, the auditorium had every uh, 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 only every third seat was open. So it, even if. <laughs> <laughs> Married couples were required to sit apart for purposes of of of, um, of social distancing, and you know, and the reason is that I don't know if you if you know this, but the coronavirus is very smart. The coronavirus figured out that, that we were going to be in the auditorium, and so it was hang, hanging around there, to, ready to get us. But we we confounded and foiled the coronavirus by, by by putting two chairs between all of us, and then it didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so. And then after my talk, uh, we all said, well, now it's time to go to the bar across the street. So we went across the bar. And sure enough, everybody's back at it. You know, handshakes, there, kisses, hugs, you know, clinky drinks, you have single food, blah, blah, blah. blah. Everybody's back to normal again. So that's that's kind of Texas. Um, but there's still a bit of a performative disease fear going on there. But that's not true in South Dakota. It's not true in Florida. So anyway, my, my point is that... Um, you know, California, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, um, and these other states are experiencing an exodus of not just people, but capital. And it's a problem. Their tax bases are shrinking. They're, they're losing residents. They're, they're losing investor interest. And and they're losing it to open states, you know, uh, Texas, South Carolina, Florida, even the Dakotas of all places. So, you know, it, it's it's there is a rush to open uh, now in New Jersey and New York and, and um, Connecticut and other places and California even, finally, um, because, because they, they're actually panicked about what they've done to their capital base and to their residents and, and to the population. So th- this is going to intensify. Um, the, the problem is they have to have a rationale. So they're like, well, cases are down. Well, cases are down because testing is down. I'm sorry, but that's just the reality. Um, so they can cite the science all they want. The point is that there's a certain there's a growing political panic, and I think that's good uh, because uh, we have got to open up. We've got to get back to things like the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, human freedom, human dignity, and uh, start repairing some of the damage that we we inflicted upon ourselves in, in 2020. It has to happen sooner rather than later.
0: Jeffrey, we have just time for one more question in this segment. Um, From your perspective, uh, did the lockdowns and the precedent that these these lockdowns set, uh, is, is this a dangerous precedent? Have we permanently damaged liberty? Well,
1: it is a very dangerous precedent, and it depends on how we respond to it now. I mean, if we say never again, if we establish, for example, public interest law firms that are ready to strike, you know, the minute they try to close your church. Now, your church has a public interest law firm that can call up and say, I want to sue. Um, we've got to get education, educational organizations out there. We've got to get community activism. Like, people have to, uh, in every peaceful way, resist lockdowns and learn from what we've gone through that I don't think it's going to be a, a, a precedent that anybody's going to want to cite. I, I actually, my hope is, that, you know, there's certain things that we do as a country that we never return to. For example, the leisure suit in the nineteen seventies. I don't think
0: those will ever come back.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I, I <laughs> so happen I, to concur. I happen to agree I happen to agree.
1: <laughs> so there are things that happen that are regrettable and then we move <laughs> on. <laughs> and I hope that that masks and social distancing and, and, and school closures and business closures and travel restrictions and quarantines it will be something we, we won't do again. We swore we would never do that after 1918 with such a disaster. Um, uh, but, you know, 100 years later, we forgot. So I think that's sort of the nature of human folly. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I just hope, Dennis, that in our lifetime we'll never make this one again.
0: Well, my guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. I will return after these words and continue my conversation with Jeffrey. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen, this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio program. I'm chatting today with the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, Mr. Jeffrey A. Tucker. Uh, his most recent book is Liberty or Lockdown. And uh, Jeffrey, I want to shift gears just a moment in this segment because we talked about lockdowns in the last segment. Certainly, that's a topic that is at the top of, of everyone's uh, consciousness these days. But the other thing that is probably a very close second in the minds of those who aspire to a comfortable, stress-free retirement is the fact that we have a massive amount of money creation taking place. And uh, I know you look at things from an Austrian perspective as far as economics is concerned. Um, Can you speak a little bit to, first of all, uh, what the policy is and, and how you think it ends up?
1: Well, this is a much more uh, difficult problem, if you can imagine that, because structurally, from a monetary and fiscal point of view, what we did in 2020 violates every canon of sound economics. You can right now go to the Federal Reserve Bank St. Louis's database called FRED and observe the money creation, the M1M2, over the course of 2020. It looks just like a hockey stick. It was terrifying. It looks like, you know, Weimar level inflation. It's a little deceptive, with the numbers are real. But uh, the, where is the money? Well, the money is designed to buy all the debt that Congress is spending to, uh, to give out all these uh, uh, checks and and all the outrageous level spending. So we, we've got a kind of uh, uh, borrow and print uh, regime going on. And uh, it, it's it's extremely dangerous to capital formation in the future and, and uh, potentially very distortive. We're starting to see the effects of the distortion on the um, stock market these days. Like the GameStop nonsense we saw the other day uh, with, uh, you know, R- Redditors um uh, uh, doing a huge pump of a, of, of a single stock that just went through the roof, you know, thereby foiling the you know the hedge fund that had some shorts on it, and so on. So, why, where is this coming from? It's coming from people that are bored out of their minds, sitting in home on their laptops, smart people, uh, burning through their government checks, continuing to get you know money from their businesses because they're barely open, but they're still open, and they're gambling. That's what's going on. So. That's a direct consequence of, of this kind of um, monetary policy. There's money everywhere. And, uh, oh, by the way, have, I don't know if you've looked at the savings rate, but we're seeing a huge increase in savings. I think the last time I was on your show, I predicted this, um, that there would be a huge decline in the velocity of money, uh, which is another way of saying a huge increase in the, in the personal savings rate. And, 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 and we have that. To thank for the fact that we haven't seen more price inflation than we've seen, because uh, these things kind of work at counter purposes. If people are holding onto the money, they're not spending it, then there's no mechanism uh, by which uh, the prices get a a push push forward. And uh, similarly. If people are not uh, investing because they're afraid of another lockdown or they're too disoriented from the last one, they're not borrowing from the banks. There's no way for the money to leave the ba- vaults of the banks and enter the top money in the street. So so far, we're, we've been spared anything like what would otherwise look like a Weimar situation is so bad. Um, and so long as that remains true, we're probably safe. Uh, the problem is that once we open up and, and uh, we get a little regime stability and people start investing again and spending money again, we're going to see a lot of push on, on prices in every sector. And that includes uh, financial markets um, also. And that, that could be very distorting and very disorienting, in which case the Fed. So here's my problem. Um, if the Fed were smart, they'd start to sop up a lot of this uh, liquidity uh, now, but the Fed is not um, very smart, as far as I can tell right now, uh, because they don't even see that there's a problem. So if we start seeing dramatic increases in, in prices in particular sectors, whether it's capital goods, consumer goods, or, um, and anything that affects people on the ground, uh, you this is the kind of the biden regime is the kind of uh, regime that would immediately impose national price controls the way nixon did back in the early 70s they're not averse to this they will do that in a heartbeat these people don't care uh, uh, a thing about economics so that i think is a genuine threat and you talk about chaos once we get into price controls then you get into shortages and Anyway, that's a really grim forecast, but I don't think it's entirely um, out of the question.
0: So uh, Ludwig von Mises uh, talked about a crack-up boom, and basically that's when you know you have a, and you would, I'm sure, be able to describe this with uh, a, a better degree of eloquence than me. But uh, essentially, you have monetary failure or hyperinflation coupled with an economic slowdown, and if I've read my uh, von Mises correctly. It's uh, an inevitable consequence if this policy continues.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, the your, your qualifier there, if the policy continues, then yes, it will end up in a crack-up boom. And it's a, there's a funny way in which these crack-up booms happen. Uh, you get a, a de- declining investment, but increasing levels of sort of what you might call just sheer economic activity. There's jobs for everybody who wants it. Uh, people are running around working longer and longer hours. The, everybody's making money, and then at some point, um, things you know really get out of control, and the the inflation kicks in, and uh, it can happen very very quickly. In Weimar it happened over the course of just several months, where the money was just life went from. Normal to kind of speedy and a little bit chaotic. Uh, and then it, it ended up in the, the utter destruction of an entire currency unit. So that's an extreme case. But something like that could happen. Um, again, the proviso, if the present policy continues, I think, uh, you know, it can't continue. I mean, there's something, has to, something has to be done. And I hope that cooler um, minds prevail over the course of uh, this year. Um, there are some smart people in governments, and I hope that they have some influence with the Biden administration. Because otherwise, we're looking at uh, potential, you know, a calamity. Um, a, a couple of other points, though, though to consider: um, one concerning real estate, and the other concerning um, economic activity in general. On the second point, lockdowns have suppressed economic activity over 2020, and we have a tremendous amount of savings uh, and, and, and pent-up energy. If the opening happens right away, we're going to see a big turnaround in that, and we could see a, a big boost in, in you know, on paper and in, in, in GDP. Um, however, uh, pushing against that is what I'm expecting there to be a, a, a big real estate bust in both residential and commercial real estate in large cities, and I mean Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, New York, Newark, and and so on. Large cities, people are fleeing them. We have yet to see them, the markets adjust. I, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, the skyscrapers of New York City are empty, empty. What is that going to do to real estate prices? You know, for, for commercial real estate in New York and. There's 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 a seventy percent vacancy rate in rentals, in some parts of the New York City. I mean, what's that going to do to rents? They're already down a third. They're probably going to follow another third. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable the the, the potential deflationary um, uh, effects that are going to happen from the from from the demographic shifts um, out of the cities and, and to the suburbs, and that's happening right. Now, even though you're not reading about it, it's
0: going on right now. Well, and Jeffrey, don't you think there's an argument to be made that you know we're we're repeating the, stake, the same mistakes of the real estate market 15 years ago, and arguably, you know, this time around could be worse because we we didn't have 30-year mortgages of three percent or maybe under 15 years ago. So haven't haven't we extended this bubble a little bit further than we did 15 years ago? And then on top of that, oh, yeah. we have this whole issue of migration. For, nobody wants to live in the city anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's the amazing thing, right? We don't learn anything. We learn nothing from 2008. It was very – I remember that bus. People were like, well, you know, we shouldn't have subsidized all those mortgages. We got really carried away. The housing boom was too – we went too far, and it's naturally obvious. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. We really learned. What did we learn? We learned nothing. (laughs) We learned nothing. I mean,
0: here we are all over again, right? Like what Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again.
1: Oh yeah, not we've learned absolutely nothing, I and mean, nobody remembers that. That was ten years ago. I don't know what it is. Do humanity just, do we just, you know, forget everything? Uh, we have to learn everything all over again every hundred years. I'm not sure what's going on, but but the the amount of economic amnesia and cell biology amnesia that we're living in us uh, uh, right now is is absolutely shocking. You'd think that nobody knew anything at all. So it's frustrating. It's frustrating for you, me, our listeners, uh, to to sit here and see this train wreck coming, knowing it's about to happen, and feeling powerless to 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 stop it. That all you can really do is uh, protect yourself and uh, keep yourself from being overlevered, you know, and um, uh, invest wisely and read, um, educate yourself, and and prepare to rebuild civilization after the, uh, if, it, if, if we're really going to collapse, we, we're going to have a big rebuilding job to together in the future.
0: So, Jeffrey, if you were running things, um, what would be the appropriate policy or policy changes to make moving ahead?
1: Um, in fiscal policy, uh, the spending needs to stop. It just has to stop. And, well, actually, there the, are the two really important prior uh, things that has to be done. One is open up free trade again. Uh, we have to do that. Biden is not doing that. He's already reimposed Trump's tariffs incredibly. So we need to get back to uh, 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 rebuilding supply chains internationally. international appetite. That's even the first part. The second one is um, open up uh, travel again. We've got to do that. Eliminating all the lockdowns and the curfews and all the closures and the business limits and all the get the schools back open. All these things have to happen from a uh, congressional point of view, they need to stop the spending and stop the nonsense and start um, paying back some of this debt. Uh, the Fed needs to stop the printing uh, immediately, and and declines to do it. And that's going to be the only way Congress is going to be controlled. The Fed just says, has to say, no more, we're done. We're not going to support – we're not going to continue to cover up for your flawed, failed policies. We're going to use rational monetary policy going forward, and you guys have to shape up. So, all those things have to happen. And I had a minor little bit of optimism when Biden was first inaugurated that we would go at least some of this way. So far, Dennis, there's not a shred of evidence that my optimism is warranted.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey A. Tucker, he is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. And, uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Love to have you back down the road again.
1: Thank you so much, Dennis. I've always enjoyed talking to you. All the best to you.
0: We will return after these words. RLA radio, I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today, and thanks again to Mr. Jeffrey Tucker for taking time out of his busy schedule to spend some time with us this past week. You know, we're talking today about the credit cycle and the currency cycle and what happens when they converge. In fact, that's the very topic of our February special report available for the first time today. Uh, The title of the report is When the Currency Cycle and Credit Cycle Converge and What It Means for You. You can get your copy of this report mailed to you by visiting requestyourreport.com. That's requestyourreport.com, and we'll be very glad to get a copy of this report out to you on a complimentary basis. So again, if you're just joining me today, let me explain what the credit cycle is. The credit cycle really advances as debt accumulates. So as it relates to your household, the more debt you have and the more debt you accumulate, the more difficult it is to make the debt service payments. And there is a point at which you can no longer accumulate debt because your income will not allow you to make the payments. Now, when you reach that point, the credit cycle has peaked. Now, that definition of the credit cycle is not applied just to your household. It also applies to the private sector overall in the aggregate, and it also applies to government spending. See, at a certain point, governments may not be able to find willing lenders in sufficient quantity to finance their deficit spending. And that's really where the United States found itself last year when by far the biggest buyer of government debt was the Federal Reserve. And of course, the question is, how did the Federal Reserve get the money to buy the debt? You know the answer. They created it. Well, when you get to a point that money is being created, you are in the third stage of the currency cycle. So a quick definition here as well. The first stage of the currency cycle has gold and silver being used as money. The second stage of the currency cycle has a paper receipt used as money, used in commerce to pay for goods and services, but that paper receipt can be directly redeemed for gold or silver. When that link between the paper receipt and gold or silver is eliminated, when it is no longer redeemable directly for gold or silver, you now have a fiat currency. That's stage three of the currency cycle. And the last stage of the currency cycle occurs when you have a fiat currency failure. Well, the point is this. The government last year, I believe, the U.S. government, reached the peak of the credit cycle. And the Federal Reserve created created money to fund this deficit, which means that we are now getting closer to stage four in the currency cycle. And I thought in this segment I would do a bit of a comparison between the numbers now and in 1929, and I would share with you where we were in the credit and currency cycles in 1929 and where we are presently. Now, in 1929, which you all know was the beginning of, or the onset of, the Great Depression, the private sector had experienced the credit cycle peak. In other words, you couldn't accumulate more debt in the aggregate. So deflation set in, and what happened? The U.S. government implemented many different programs with the goal of alleviating some of the pain the general population was experiencing. Now the point is this. In 1929, the U.S. government was not at the end of the credit cycle. In 1929, the U.S. government had debt that totaled 16% of economic output. Think about this. For every dollar the U.S. had in production in 1929, there was 16 cents of national debt. In 2021, the U.S. government has official debt approaching $28 trillion and a, a debt-to-GDP ratio, debt-to-economic output ratio of more than 146%. So for every dollar of economic output today, there's debt of nearly $1.50. In 1929, there was debt of 16 cents for every dollar of economic output. Today, $1.50 in debt for every dollar of economic output. So in 1929, when the policymakers decided to have the U.S. government make up for the lack of spending in the private sector, the U.S. government was not insolvent. Frighteningly, This is not the case today. See, in 1929, when the private sector reached the peak of the credit cycle, the U.S. government was early in the credit cycle, and as far as the currency cycle was concerned, it was still in stage one. In 1929, gold was still circulating as currency. One-ounce gold coins were worth $20, as they had been for nearly 100 years, with only a couple exceptions along the way. Now, in 2008, the U.S. government and the private sector reached the peak of the credit cycle. The currency cycle had been in stage three since 1971, and the U.S. dollar has been and is now a fiat currency. Now, in 2008, the U.S. government was nearing the end of the credit cycle, but at that time, there were still some lenders for U.S. government debt as there was some demand. But last year, as I noted the biggest buyer of U.S. government debt was the Federal Reserve. So at the present time, we have the private sector and the government at the end of the credit cycle, and the currency cycle, I believe, is in late stage 3. In 1929, the private sector had peaked in the credit cycle, but the government had not, and we were still in stage 1 of the currency cycle. So here's where we find ourselves. The private sector has peaked in the credit cycle. The U.S. government has peaked on the credit cycle. And the currency cycle is late stage three, approaching stage four, unless drastic reaction relating to spending and money creation are taken. And that seems now increasingly unlikely. So what should you do? Well, as my guest today, Jeffrey Tucker, said, you want to do your best to protect yourself. And to that end, uh, we do have a report available to you today uh, titled, When the Credit Cycle and the Currency Cycle Converge. It explores this in detail. You can get a copy of the report by visiting requestyourreport.com. The website, again, to get your free report is requestyourreport.com. And if you've not already done so, I would encourage you to visit the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. Uh, There are a number of free resources there, including access to our weekly newsletter And our monthly, uh, excuse me, our weekly update webinar that we call Portfolio Watch Live. You can also see all the past webinars and go listen to any of the interviews you hear on the program at the website. Again, that's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use.